Welcome to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and staff achieve peak economic and practice efficiency so there is time and energy to focus on patient care and a happy life. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-hosts, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. Welcome to episode 72 of the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-host, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. And today we, in this uh, episode, we are going to cover several things. First, we're going to circle back to a question or a clarification from episode 68 about uh, penile prosthesis. And uh, we had a further clarification from uh, the doc that performed that particular uh, procedure and had the question. So we want to circle back and answer that and follow up with that. And then also, Amy had some additional questions on IPPs. So we want to answer those. And then finally, Valerie asked a question that really sparked some discussion on incident two that we would like to um, explore a little bit further. And, and uh, you know, there's always confusion about incident two. So we want to uh, revisit that and clarify that. So, uh, so let's get started. Okay. So with that episode 68, we had uh, the the original question um, was uh, an IPP reservoir eroded in the patient patient's bladder. The doctor removes the foreign body in the bladder and replaces the one component of the IPP. Um, and the, the further clarification was the profi- procedure involved opening the bladder, removing the prosthetic reservoir, replacing with a new reservoir only in a new location and closing the bladder. So, uh, so Mark, you want to clarify that uh, answer that we gave in episode 68? Yeah. So, so because it, um, eroded into the bladder, um, you know, you've got a little bit, you've got some extra work there that you normally wouldn't have to relative to that, um, particular procedure. You know, you wouldn't necessarily actually go into the bladder to replace a penile prosthetic. Um, so there, there is some extra work involved there, um, but because it is part of the procedure itself, approach-wise, um, and a requirement um, to to get it out of the bladder and repair the bladder in order for you to um, have that replacement occur, um, then the the path I think you could look to for that is to add a 22 modifier to the 54408. Um, I don't think um, realistically that that would support the use of another code given the global description, including approach um, and everything relative to that particular service. So uh, for that, I would look at using a 22 modifier, uh, if anything, to get paid for the extra work of repairing the bladder because of the erosion. All right. Ray, anything to add on that? Uh, I think Mark is given the correct way to go. You always think about, you know, the unusual services that are required uh, to perform a procedure. Uh, But I don't think it would uh, fly on this by adding that to the bladder because it is connected and we had to do that in order to do the main procedure. 
Okay. All right. Well, hopefully that clarifies that uh, that question and uh, gets that taken care of for uh, the episode 68 and the follow-up. So now we're going to move on to another question about IPPs from Amy. And she said, uh, good morning. Thank you so much for answering my previous question regarding the QW modifier. While I was listening to the episode, you answered another question on IPPs. We do a lot of these and have a few follow-up questions, if I may. Number one, you mentioned that if you remove and replace only one component of IPP, you should use 54408. I was reading an article from AMS, which is amsmenshealth.com, and it said that they would recommend using the 54410-52. I do like the idea of using the 54408 because it takes forever to get a claim paid with the 52. Do you want to tackle that one first, and then we'll go to the other two questions? Yeah. So I can see where the AMS folks went that way. Um, you know, we do have codes within that uh, structure, within that family, that are remove and replace um, for the, all components of that. And then we have the 54408, which is repair. And we don't have a separate code within that family that says remove and replace a single component. Um, so they're probably thinking that repair means you go in there and you simply mechanically repair one particular component um, in the process. So it's really a, a an interpretation of the word repair and what it means in the whole process. Um, so um, we have leaned towards repair um, in this instance being either fixing the the process the component part or replacing it and the 54408. And I do think that's the more appropriate interpretation of that code um, rather than using the 54410-52, which is all components and you're reducing it in that particular regard. So um, I I don't think, I I think you could argue this because it is a little bit uh, gray in the remove and replace versus repair. Um, but the 54408 is specific to a single component and a repair of that. And if you need to replace it, you are repairing that particular component. Um, so I think the 54408 is, is, is more appropriate and descriptive in this instance. Ray? <laughs> I agree with Mark that it's gray. And the one issue that we need to consider is in replace, uh, they probably can get uh, reimbursed for the component. And with repair, I don't know whether the ASC or the hospital could or not. So I agree with the gray part. All right. So are you that you're saying you agree with AMS that they should build a 5441052? I'm saying it's gray. <laughs> I, I don't think either one of you are 100% correct. But I think you could do it with the 52. Well, so I, th- I, I, I like I said, I think it's gray. I think the options there. Um, but I also think that the 54408 would would potentially would could allow for the interpretation uh, and should allow for the interpretation of allowing you to pay for that component part as well. So you're making an assumption that they're not going to pay for the part that that is not necessarily true. 
No, I'm just saying you ought to check to be sure, sure. you're getting paid for it. Right. right, and that's a good consideration. I would agree. And Amy makes a good point. It takes forever to get a claim paid with a 52. So there's, you know, time and effort involved with that. And it's going to vary by payer interpretation. So you might want to check with your payer on both parts. It's so nice to be able to totally clarify an issue, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll move on to Amy's second question. What if you remove a multi-component and replace with a malleable? Would you use 54406 and 54400? Uh, the answer to that is short and simple, yes. Um, bundling edits allow it, and it is uh, much more descriptive of and, and, and the only real pathway that we have right now to, to, uh, to cover that service. Okay. That one I liked. It was nice. And <laughs> All right. And I'm assuming, Ray, you don't have a comment on that. So we'll go on to, well, you might. But nope, no comment. Okay. I agree. All right. All right. So uh, number three, last one, same scenario. Remove the IPP in total and replace with malleable. But this patient has a lot of history of erosion on the left. So the malleable, malleable was only placed on his right. Okay, and this one, uh, I would go back and look at a couple of different things. One is the description of the procedure, which is the insertion of a semi-rigid um, penile prosthetic. Um, there is no mention of bilateral in the description. Um, there is uh, an, uh, an exclusion of use of modifier 50. Um, so there's, they are saying that you cannot bill it um, bilaterally if you put it in on both sides. Um, and I would say clinically the assumption is you would place the malleable two, one on each side um, for the majority of patients. So the implication is you're going to put it in on both sides, um, but the code description um, doesn't say that it needs to be placed on both sides. Um, so this one I'm going to leave in the gray area. I would say you don't necessarily need to use a 52 modifier if you're only doing one side and you've got a medical reason like erosion for only placing one side. Um, and, and the work effort there might be significant um, in that overall process and you're already getting paid 50% because you're removing the uh, multi-component IPP already. So um, I don't think you necessarily need to use a 52 modifier um, in this circumstance um, based on the description, um, but there may be some folks that feel that you do, but my recommendation would be no 52, just bill it even though you just, you only put it on one side. Ray? Oh, I think that's correct. Okay. That's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Final thing we wanted to cover is a, a question that came in for, from Valerie that sparked a discussion on Internet 2. But her question is, I wanted to see if anyone knew of a resource, authority of such, authoritative such as CMS, that could give me guidelines on reporting PTNS in office setting. My urologists are stating that they can have an MA perform the service and do not need to co-sign the nurse note. 
I disagree. Does anyone have any advice and resources I can take back to them, or am I wrong? Thanks. Uh, all right, Valerie. So, so this one's an interesting one. So basically, the incident two rules are in the Internet uh, Only Manual and the Integrity Manual Manual for Medicare, um, and and that's where we're going to start because you know the incident two rules vary by payer. So in that sense, you're going to you're unfortunately for authoritative billing across each uh, payer, you're going to have to look at your contracts and how closely they mirror Medicare. So Medicare's our our first stop, and when you read through the the Medicare guidelines. Um, there are uh, basically the specific requirements for incident two services is that the physician uh, or that the patient is um, under the care of a physician. So the physician, if the physician's going to bill for PTNS, um, and and by the way, maybe I should switch this to QHP because this could be uh, under an order from APP and incident two and APP. So we'll say QHP. Um, so they have to have an established relationship with a QHP and the plan of care needs to be established um, for that particular patient. And when the service is provided, the, the billing QHP needs to be in the facility and immediately available for assistance. So that's the, the standard rule on the incident two side within the Medicare manual. Now, Medicare last year um, for the internet or for the final rule stated that students that are working on therapy licenses can also be considered um, incident two um, if they are um, in a training program for the practice. But Medicare in that rule did say that the physician needed to countersign the note for the students. So that one's that one's clear that if you've got uh, therapy students providing that, then you need to have the the note signed. The signature on every single note for the uh, nurse that's working for you or the MA that's providing the service um, is not as well documented within CMS uh, nationally. Now there are requirements. Um, by the, the various carriers out there um, with local coverage articles um, like Neridian um, that I, I will tell you it, it does look like the carriers are trying to get a little bit better uh, about uh, adopting or you know, let's, let's just say consolidating their directives. So looking at all LCDs or LCAs out there um, even though they're not necessarily applying to you or something that you can look at as a guide. Um, so, but the guide um, put forth by um, Neridian on the local coverage and, and really one followed by almost all payers is that PTNS is originally uh, approved for 12 weeks, once a week, um, and that the patient needs to demonstrate uh, improvement using PTNS uh, to continue care throughout the 12 weeks and for care beyond that 12 weeks. Um, so that would require a QHP assessment of the patient initially for the order 
Um, and by the way, they, they also specify that the patient needs to fail an anticholinergic or be intolerant of an anticholinergic to start PTNS, which is not one that's been adopted by all, but again, should be watched. Um, and that the, um, so you will have to have the QHP uh, evaluate the patient at, at before the, it starts to get a baseline. And then typically at either visit four, five, or six, the QHP would need to evaluate the patient, which would require direct contact with the patient and developing a note that they, of course, sign. And then at the end, they need to reevaluate the patient and make sure that that care uh, is working and they should continue that. So you definitely have some touch points that need to be provided by a QHP and the, that would require obviously a signed note. As far as those interim visits, you know, those ones that really do not require a QHP because the MA is working under orders. Um, that uh, unfortunately is variable by payer. Um, and uh, so I can see where your urologists are coming from. Um, not every state nor every CMS uh, MAC carrier has specific guidelines that require and state that require the physician to officially sign off on every single encounter. Um, and there's nothing in the CMS national guidelines that specifically state they need to sign or countersign every note. Um, so in the end, um, you'll wanna check your Medicare carrier bulletins for incident two rules to see if your carrier is requiring that note. Um, I can tell you that some of the racks um, are looking the are looking at notes to see that they're all signed by whoever billed the procedure, and that is um, oftentimes viewed as a take back um, request um, that could result in an argument one way or another. Uh, so, in the end, you've got a number of different interpretations, a number of different rule sets that are out there, and. I can't give you a definitive, you're right and they're wrong, or they're right and you're wrong in this particular instance, because it is not clear and we do not have that guidance unless you're in a state in which your Medicare carrier specifically indicates you have to sign those notes. Um, even then, you might be better off in each case having your docs countersign those notes to avoid some of the arguments with the RAC that the billing provider has signed each service that they're billing for. Um, so in my uh, overly cautious um, advice to you would be to have your physician sign those notes um, to cover your, 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 to cover your basis um, for all circumstances. So, right. Can't give you a definitive, but there, there, there's the undefinitive. Unfortunately, Mark is correct. Uh, and to specifically answer that question, the doc, your doc is correct. For Medicare proper, it is not necessary for you to sign an incident to note. However, uh, each of the uh, the carriers 
including the Medicare carriers, and some state laws do require it. And I would totally agree with Mark. As superfluous as that could should be considered by some, uh, when the doc has ordered it and the doc is being is having to be there and the doc is actually billing for it and signing the billing, uh, it, it shouldn't be necessary for him to sign the note. But in this overly cautious and overly uh, checking society we're in, I think you're right in the fact that the doc should go ahead and sign the note and prevent the rack audits and so forth. I hate to say it, but that's the way it sounds like it is. Okay. All right. I think that uh, that was a good discussion and gives a good summary and, you know, better be safe than sorry in a lot of, uh, a lot of areas and sounds like covering your bases makes sense here. Okay. It is urology coding month, which is October. And I do want to make the announcement that we are having some free E&M training. Mark's going to be providing that. It's going to be online and 30 minutes each. We're going to do four different sessions beginning October 25th. Um, so we're going to go to the 25th, the 27th, 28th, and 29th. So we hope you join us for that. We want to really show why E&M is so important in the urology practice and for urologists, both employed and private practice, and why it's important for uh, not only urologists to know the E&M coding, but also APPs and and billers, coders, and the staff. So E&M is super important. We're also going to go through kind of medical decision-making 2.0. Listen, Mark's going to share with you what uh, what we've learned in 2021 and how to, you know, just kind of update you on all the different uh, medical decision-making, um, the problem, the risk, and the data, and how it's evolved. And, uh, and then we want to uh, cover some shortcuts and tips and tools that we have that we recommend that'll make your uh, E&M coding much easier. And then finally, we want to cover in that free session uh, elective sterilization. So we want to go over the specifics of a vasectomy E&M visit, and we want to show what level that is. And, and that's going to be one of 22 that we're actually detailing, but uh, we're going to do the detailing in a workshop. But we wanted to first show uh, uh, what the vasectomy looks like and what the data, the problem, and uh, the risk are for that and what level it is. So I want to go through that. So we're excited to have that. Please look forward to or please look out for your email. We want to ask some questions and ask a favor of everyone to um, if you have a specific uh, diagnosis. We're going to be sending out a question for a specific diagnosis request to each of you. Please look out for that. And if you can share some information with us, we would greatly appreciate that. Help us uh, really develop this content. Um, let's see. What did I miss? Anything? I don't okay. think so. <clears throat> okay. So uh, also, the, you'll be seeing some uh, emails, and also you can check on our website on how to register for those free E&M training webinars. So you can go to 
PRS network forward slash 072 to access that information as well. We look forward to seeing you there. And, uh, to, and also, uh, we are having our urology advanced coding and reimbursement seminars in Las Vegas and New Orleans. And we hope you join us for those. Uh, we're excited to have our live in-person seminars, uh, one in the Las Vegas seminars in December and the New Orleans seminar is in January. So let's uh, wrap it up there. Final thoughts uh, on today, right? Question, Scott. Are you going to be taking extra precautions to avoid the, the virus at your seminars? Yes, we're going to be following, uh, you know, luckily we're with a group that uh, with healthcare that's a very highly vaccinated group. So we are going to uh, follow all the, the safety protocols and make sure that uh, we are uh, doing the appropriate distancing and um, masking for those that aren't vaccinated. And hopefully, since we're in the healthcare field, we got uh, really high vaccination rates there. Mark, anything to add on that, what you've seen out there on the road? Yeah, so, I mean, as with everything, we will, like uh, all the in-person meetings I've attended so far, follow CDC guidelines as well as local guidelines that are implied. I mean, that's that's what we need to do, and that's a piece of it. Um, you know, I've seen a number of different, uh, I've been to a number of different section meetings recently that people are starting to uh, get out and about. Um, CDC right now recommends that if you are unvaccinated, that you need to wear a mask if you're indoor and uh, appropriately distanced. So we will continue with that. Um, if you are vaccinated um, and indoors, the recommendation is you still wear your mask um, unless um, you're eating or drinking, and so we're going to recommend that. Um, but we do have um, some uh, flexibility right now. A lot of our, when the speaker is far away from everyone else, the speakers um, often are unmasked. Um, all of our speakers are vaccinated. Um, so uh, that is um, that is one of those things that gives us a little bit of room to go ahead and, and have those. But if those rules change, then we will do those um, under uh, with vaccination or with uh, under those CDC guidelines. So we're going to continue to do that right now. It would allow us to be unmasked. Um, but again, for your for, while we were we, while we are speaking, um, but we do want to uh, emphasize that we're going to mask um, when we are uh, not speaking or um, eating or drinking, um, like the CDC says. So that's that's what I've seen elsewhere, and and it it, it has worked so far um, with everything that's there. And we'll watch what happens with the CDC and the various recommendations that are out there. All right. Okay. Any any other final thoughts from either of you two? Nope. Okay. All right. Take us out, Ray. Happy Cody. Thank you for listening to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and their staff maximize income and efficiencies so there's time and energy for patient care and a happy life. 
Special thanks to Carl Painter for the music today. You can find his music on Spotify under his record label, The Juicery. <laughs>